And for ourselves, O Lord, as we now come to Your Word, we pray that You would use Your Word to sharpen us, to strengthen us, to teach us, to correct us, to encourage us. You know what we need from Your Word. And so we come to You, Lord, as hungry beggars asking for You to feed us with Your Word. Nourish the depths of our soul with Your Word. Strengthen our hearts with Your Word. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate Your Word for us that we might understand and that He might strengthen our hearts to act upon it. We pray for our children, for all the children who are here and listening, for the children inside the womb, for the children outside the womb. Oh Lord, we pray that You would use Your Word to accomplish Your purposes in their lives as well. We pray that they would hear Your Word and that they would hide it deep in their hearts. And that in due time, the seeds that are planted today would bear a rich harvest. We pray these things not only for them, but for ourselves as well. Use Your Word to strengthen us. Use Your Word to show us Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 14. We're going to be wrapping up John chapter 14 today as we look at verses 25 to 31. John chapter 14, verses 25 to 31. We've been in this, uh, this chapter for quite a while now. Uh, but this chapter has been very important. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. That's what this, uh, this portion of text that came after the Last Supper uh, and before they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, this is the Upper Room Discourse. It's uh, filled with words of comfort and encouragement. Uh, a few words of rebuke for the disciples who couldn't understand, uh, but they would. And we're going to see why. Uh, they would as we continue in our study of John today. Uh, as we've studied John's gospel, one of the themes that we have seen over and over and over again throughout this book uh, is the frailty of the disciples, just the, the weakness of their, their understanding and their faith. And that frailty hasn't even hit the high point yet. It hasn't even peaked yet. Although in real time, in, in the text, it's about to. They're about an hour, hour and a half away from their greatest moment of failure. Uh, Jesus has been speaking all of these words of comfort and encouragement and reassurance to His disciples after the Last Supper. He, he warned uh, His disciples throughout this chapter of what was uh, lying ahead for them. That tough times were lying ahead for them. That He was going to be leaving them. And as he began to speak these words of encouragement, as he began to prepare them for the difficult times that laid ahead, you'll remember that Peter boasted of how he would never, ever leave Jesus' side. Even if all the other disciples did, Peter was sure that he never would, which led to quite a rebuke. Jesus warned Peter, that he would indeed leave Jesus' side, that in fact he would betray Jesus. Not just once, but three times before the rooster crowed. In other words, uh, before the night's over, Peter, you're, you're going to be a million miles away from me. No, the frailty and the weakness of the disciples and their, their understanding and, and their faith, it hasn't peaked, but it's going to very soon. But it's not only John who presents the disciples as being so frail and so weak. All of the Gospel accounts uh, so vividly portray the disciples this way. They're very transparent when it comes to portraying the frailty and the weakness of the disciples. And one of those moments that, uh, that, that's probably one of the most significant, probably one of the most well-known moments when their weakness is most clear, clearly seen, came in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus brings them uh, across the lake and He's sleeping in the bow of the boat in the midst of this terrible, fierce storm. And the disciples are they're terrified. 
And so they wake him up and they, they sort of try to rebuke him by, by saying to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And when you think about that question, it's like, of course he cares. Why do you think he stepped down from his throne in heaven, took on flesh, and lived among them as God incarnate? It's because he cared that they were perishing. So of course he cared. But Mark then tells us, And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. This of course leaves the disciples amazed and they're asking themselves, Who is this then that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Now what's interesting in in that account is that the word that gets translated hush in the NASB literally means to be at peace. It means to be at peace. And that's why there are several uh, trustworthy translations, such as the KJV, the NKJV, and the ESV, to name just a few. They all read, instead of hush, be still, they say peace, be still. That's implied in Jesus saying hush. But that account is a reminder that following Jesus does not mean that your life is going to be all smooth sailing and sunny skies. Maybe it will be sometimes. And praise the Lord for the seasons in which it's that way. We enjoy those seasons. But this story of Jesus calming the seas reminds us that Jesus Himself sometimes sends or sometimes leads His people into storms and trials. And so we have to learn how to thank and praise God for those times and for those seasons in our lives as well. If you understand God's love, if you understand God's sovereign care for His own, then you know that He is causing all things to work together for His people's growth in Christ's likeness. And the seasoned Christian is going to be aware that growth in Christ's likeness, we might not like this, but we know that this is true, growth in Christ's likeness happens better and more efficiently and more effectively in the midst of storms and trials and afflictions than it does with smooth sailing and sunny skies. While our lives as followers of Christ will be marked by hardships and difficulties and trials of every flavor, we should nevertheless be a people who are filled with peace and joy through it all. Because our peace and joy shouldn't be found in our circumstances. We shouldn't just demonstrate peace and joy simply because we're comfortable or, or things are going well. No, peace and comfort comes and goes for, for everybody. But because we belong to Jesus... And the peace that He gives His people surpasses understanding. We should be a people who are characterized by peace and joy despite our circumstances. The same Jesus who told the winds and the seas to be at peace would fill His disciples with peace as He continues to prepare them for the storm that they are about to face as He will be arrested and crucified. Their whole world, the disciples' whole world, including so many of their their very worldly hopes and aspirations, their false expectations for what the Messiah would do, it was all about to be turned upside down and shaken out. But Jesus didn't want His disciples to cling to worldly hopes or false expectations or worldly aspirations. He wanted them to cling to Him. He wanted them to trust in Him and to find peace not in their circumstances, but in Him. And so His words in the passage that we come to today are going to teach us how to have peace in Christ when the world feels like it's doing one of these types of things on us. Just flipping our world upside down and shaking everything out. The point of the passage that we come to today is that we can rejoice in Jesus Because He returned to the Father where He asked the Father to send His people the Holy Spirit who teaches us and gives us peace in troubled times. Jesus has been instructing His disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit and about the way that the lives of His people will be characterized by love-driven, love-motivated obedience 
to His commandments. Uh, These are the major themes of this chapter, which records, again, what we call the upper room discourse. And so Jesus begins to wrap up the upper room discourse in verses 25 and 26. Let's look at those together. Uh, John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says this. He says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So Jesus reminds them once again that He's not there to stay. That the time is coming and is at hand when He will be departing from the disciples. Their questions and their concerns have not changed God's sovereign plans. But Jesus isn't leaving them as spiritual orphans. That's what we saw in the last passage that we studied. He's not leaving them without help. Jesus has already told them that when He goes to the Father, He will ask the Father to send another helper or advocate or paraclete. And so here He reminds them of that promise and of the certainty of what God the Father will do in response to Jesus' request to the Father. He says that the Father will send the Holy Spirit in My name. That's what Jesus says. In My name. Now these verses, if you like church history, you know that these verses stand right in the middle of probably the greatest church split in all of church history. Uh, That divide came over the question of who sends the Holy Spirit? Who sends the Holy Spirit? Is it the Father or is it the Son? Or is it both? In 1054 AD, the church divided between the East and the West because of this question. And that's, by the way, where the Eastern Orthodox Church comes from. That's where it originated. They originated because they actually deviated from what was written in the Nicene Creed, which answers this question. The Nicene Creed says of the Holy Spirit, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. There's their answer right there. If the Eastern Church would have just held to what the church fathers who wrote the Nicene Creed had already established, the biggest church split in history would never have happened. The Roman Catholic Church, they were actually the ones who held the line on the Orthodox understanding of the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Eastern Orthodox Church essentially argued, verse uh, 26 here in John 14 clearly says that the Father would be the one who would send the Holy Spirit. And we would have to agree that that's what Jesus said. He said, I will ask the Father and the Father will send this other helper. But like with any other case, you can't just break this free from the context. You can't just take what Jesus said in this one little clause in the middle of a a much larger sentence, which is in a much bigger uh, context, and say, oh, well, this is very clear. Uh, Because it isn't always. You have to examine everything in light of its context. So what we must notice is how Jesus says the Father would send the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that the Father would send the Holy Spirit in my, in Jesus' name. Now, I understand that phrase can be very, very confusing. All you need to do is listen to to a televangelist pray who prays a, a heretical prayer and tacks on in Jesus' name at the end and thinks that that's a magical formula that guarantees that his prayer is going to be answered. Um, it's not terminology that we use very commonly to say, say that somebody is coming in somebody else's name. But the question really must be, not how do we understand this, but how would the mind of the first century Jew understand this phrase? R.C. Sproul said this, he said, quote, to the ancient Jew, the words in my name meant as an emissary, end quote. Now this is important because there are some people who mistakenly think that Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit will be a substitute for him. Uh, But the Holy Spirit is not a substitute. He he didn't come to do what Jesus was doing. 
Uh, He didn't come to just take Jesus' place. Uh, He wasn't sent to replace Christ. He is an emissary. An emissary is defined in the American Heritage Dictionary as an agent sent on a mission to represent or advance the interests of another. So, whose interests does the Holy Spirit advance? Christ's. He came in Christ's name. He came to advance Christ's interests. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, we should first understand that His role, the Holy Spirit's role, isn't only defined here, although we, we find part of uh, what He does um, in this passage. It, it's further defined in the next chapter, and it's further defined and explained in, throughout other places in Scripture. For example, his, uh, his role in the believer's war against the flesh is fleshed out, so to speak, in Romans chapter 8. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is fleshed out in Galatians chapter 5, and so on and so forth. His, his role is defined throughout Scripture. But what specifically does Jesus want the disciples and, and us to understand about the emissary work of the Holy Spirit in this specific context and what He is saying right here. And that's what Jesus answers in the second half of verse 26. Look at verse 26 again. Jesus says that there are two specific tasks, two particular roles that the Holy Spirit would have and accomplish. He says, He will teach you all things first, and secondly, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Two roles right there. Now the question for us to consider is this. Is this something that's promised only to the disciples, or does it apply to all Christians throughout the centuries to follow as well? And before we go any further, let me just point out that commentators are divided on that. Some say uh, it only applies to the disciples, while others say it applies to everybody, all, all believers. And I would say I, I hold kind of a, a middle position there. Uh, there are different senses in which it applies to the disciples and to us. There's one sense in which it can only apply to the disciples. And, and this is just common sense. Uh, because they were present. They, they were right there. They, they heard Jesus talk. They saw Jesus illustrate things. Uh, they were present throughout Jesus' entire earthly ministry. And these are the things that they would recall, that the Holy Spirit would cause them to recall. They had spent, think about this, they had spent hundreds and hundreds of hours listening to Him teach, maybe even thousands of hours. How can anybody's mind possibly remember all of that? And we would say, yeah, that's, that's an unrealistic expectation. If, you, if you've ever been in a, in, a, in a class where the teacher primarily lectures and gives a, some illustrations here and there, uh, say by the end of the semester, do you remember every word, word for word? No, you don't. But throughout John's Gospel, uh, he reminds us that there were all these things that the disciples didn't understand. That they, that they didn't understand, but that they would need to remember in order to understand. And in order for them to remember those things, the Holy Spirit would help them so that they could understand. And that would come after the resurrection of Christ. For example, back in chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple, and when the religious leaders come to question Jesus, uh, interrogate Him, afterward, uh, they asked him this. They said, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And you remember what Jesus said? He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. There's your sign right there. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, the, the, the religious leaders had no idea what Jesus was talking about. And what we see is neither did the disciples. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about. They thought Jesus was talking about the physical temple there in Jerusalem. But Jesus was actually prophesying of His future death and resurrection from the grave. So then John makes a comment which is sort of like a breadcrumb for us. Sort of like something that points us back to what Jesus says here in verse 26 of chapter 14. John says this back in chapter 2. He says, So when He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that. 
he said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now that was kind of toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I imagine they weren't Thinking about that for a long time afterwards, that they just kept following Jesus and he was filling their minds with more things. Uh, They weren't dwelling on this, but when Jesus was resurrected, the Holy Spirit brought this specific instant back into their memory and everything that was said verbatim back into their memory so that they could record it. Uh, We see it again when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey's colt in chapter 12. There John again notes, uh, these things His disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of Him and that they had done these things to Him. So what we're supposed to see then, as we consider the the whole testimony of, of John, is that the Holy Spirit helped the disciples to remember all these moments that by themselves they otherwise would have either forgotten or just thought nothing of. Uh, the Holy Spirit would come and help them to understand and remember these moments when they were just so confused by what Jesus was either saying or doing or both. And not only to remember uh, their confusion, but to finally understand what it was that Jesus was talking about or trying to teach. And so in this sense, what Jesus said about the role of the Holy Spirit had a unique application to the disciples. It applies only to them in one sense, because you and I weren't there. We can't look back and remember a time that Jesus was wearing something particular and said something that was confusing and didn't make a lot of sense, but it does apply to us in another sense. It does apply to us in the sense that the Holy Spirit is the one who must give us an understanding of the Scriptures. And without the Holy Spirit giving us an understanding of the Scriptures, we are blind and completely in the dark in terms of what the Scriptures are saying. No, the Holy Spirit must illuminate the text, and He is perfectly capable of bringing verses and passages into our memory when we need them. The disciples didn't understand why the events that were about to take place must take place. They didn't understand why Jesus had to leave them. They didn't understand why He was saying He had to go to the Father. But they would. They would understand. Because the Holy Spirit, who would be sent by the Father and the Son in Jesus' name, as His emissary, as His ambassador, He would teach them. He would bring to mind all these things and He would teach them. Now, if you notice what Jesus says, He says, He will teach you all things. That doesn't mean that these first century guys were capable of being rocket scientists in the 21st century. No, what He means there is He will teach you all things about Jesus that they need to understand. The disciples didn't understand. But they would. Because the Holy Spirit would bring all these things to their mind, and He would teach them everything they needed to understand about Jesus. Now there are two really important principles, really important applications that we can gather here in the 21st century from this passage. First of all, we have to remember that the Holy Spirit, referred to earlier in this chapter as the Spirit of Truth, He's the one who oversaw and who inspired the testimonies which would be recorded as the four Gospels in our Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as such, the message that the Holy Spirit teaches us today is the same message that Jesus taught His disciples. John Calvin comments on the the Holy Spirit's role saying this. He says, Quote, he will not be a builder of new revelations. By this single word, we may refute all the inventions which Satan has brought into the church from the beginning under the pretense of the Spirit. But the Spirit that introduces any doctrine or invention apart from the Gospel is a deceiving Spirit and not the Spirit of Christ. 
Now, in John Calvin's day, that was very important because if you remember, the Roman Catholic Church had two sources of authority. They had the Scriptures, and they also had their holy tradition. And their holy tradition was what really um, uh, forced them to interpret the Scriptures in a certain way. And so the Scriptures were not their authority. And so what he's saying, what John Calvin was saying, is that all these teachings from tradition are demonic. If they don't align with Scripture, if they force us to see Scripture a certain way just for the sake of tradition because some pope down the line said so, that's not from the Holy Spirit. That's what John Calvin was saying. Of course, in our day, we'd see that a little bit differently. We wouldn't see it necessarily in terms of tradition, but maybe we'd see it in terms of people who say, God told me this. Or God told me that. God to- There's a video of a, of a famous uh, female teacher out there who says that uh, God told her not to share the Gospel with somebody. Is that something the Holy Spirit would do? No. No. So, there, so the words apply, but in a different way in our day and age. And a lot of people will point out you know, the various differences and apparent discrepancies that you might find between the gospel accounts, but a closer examination of the gospel accounts will demonstrate the harmony of the gospel accounts. This is the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit who taught the apostles, leading them to accurately recall, to accurately understand, and accurately convey the teachings of Christ in their records. And the Spirit today teaches only what is recorded in the Scriptures. That's the first application that we can gather from this passage. The second application is that we must see that part of the Spirit's ongoing ministry is to give us understanding. To give us understanding of the Scriptures. It's not just about memorizing words, storing up stories in our, in our minds, in our, in our intellect, no, if it, that's, that's not a bad thing necessarily, but if it just stays there, that's nothing. No, if we are to understand the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit must illuminate them for us. He must shed spiritual light on them for us. He must teach us. And so therefore, we should pray often that He would do that. That He would give us understanding. Whether it's when we study individually, when you're doing your daily devotions maybe, or when we you know, study together as a congregation as the Word is preached to us. We should be praying regularly for the Holy Spirit to shine spiritual light on the text in order that we might have understanding. Now how do we know that the disciples correctly and fully understood the truth about Jesus? This passage tells us it's because the Holy Spirit ensured that they did. How do we know that we can trust our Bibles today? Because the Holy Spirit ensured that what the disciples recorded was accurate. The role of the Holy Spirit with the disciples was not to give the disciples new revelation per se, but it was to teach the disciples to understand to remember and understand the revelation which had been given by Jesus Himself. Similarly, the role of the Holy Spirit with us today, 21st century, is never ever to give us new revelation, but to give us understanding of what He taught the disciples to understand and write, which they received from Jesus. And this is exactly what Paul was saying when he wrote to the church in Corinth, saying in First Corinthians chapter two verse twelve, now we believers, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So that here's a purpose statement: so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. There's an implication there that you cannot understand, and therefore you cannot receive these things without the Holy Spirit helping you. And so, we can rejoice in the midst of our troubles and trials because the Holy Spirit has been sent by God the Father and the Son for the purpose of teaching us. 
We can rejoice because what He teaches us, what He reminds us of, what He assures us of, the promises of God that He brings to our mind when we're in a tough time, this is what Christ has left us. A legacy of peace in His Gospel. Look at what Jesus says next. Let's look at verse 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now you might remember, that's how chapter 14 started. Do not let your heart be troubled. How often do you need to be reminded of that? Do not let your heart be troubled. The only thing we know that Jesus possessed in this world was a robe, which is the same robe that was taken from him when he was crucified and for which the Roman soldiers gambled at the foot of the cross. That's all he had that we know of. Jesus didn't leave his disciples with a trust fund. He didn't leave his disciples with a, a, a big stash of cash somewhere. He didn't leave them with gold. He didn't leave them with silver or any other earthly treasure. He left them with something better. Those are things that moth and rust can destroy. He left them with something that moth and rust can't even touch. And that is a peace that only his people would experience. The same peace which the Apostle Paul would say surpasses understanding. Now we all know that uh, it was kind of a, a Hebrew custom uh, to say shalom, uh, which means peace. Uh, it was very important in the, the Jewish mind. It was also used as a word of, of bidding farewell. You say shalom when you, when you greet, greet somebody and when you depart from somebody. Kind of like how in Hawaii you say aloha uh, when, you're, when you're greeting somebody or when you're walking away. But in the Jewish mind, peace was one of the most important things that would characterize what the Messiah would establish in His kingdom. Every week, you might notice when we close our service, I recite what's referred to as the Aaronic, as in Aaron, uh, Aaronic blessing or benediction, which is found in Numbers chapter 26. But do you remember the last line of the benediction? I say this, I say, may the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the Aaronic blessing. The ironic benediction. In Isaiah, when the prophet is telling us of the, uh, the coming Messiah, he writes this in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. He says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. We find similar promises of the Messiah establishing peace in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 26. God tells Ezekiel of the new covenant which would be established by the blood of the Messiah. And he says this, And I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And this is exactly why Jesus left this with His disciples. There's this understanding that, Je that the Messiah was going to establish peace. But on the surface level, it sure doesn't look like that's what they're headed for. And so Jesus tells them, My peace I leave with you. This is what He left for His disciples. And not only for His disciples, but for all of His people in the centuries to come. But Jesus didn't just give them this kind of general peace. He didn't give them a temporary peace. He says, My peace I give to you. He doesn't just say, Peace I give to you. Peace I leave with you. That's not what He says. He says, My peace I give to you. At the individual level, this peace that He gives is a peace that overcomes fear and anxiety. It's a peace that nullifies the invasion of nervous and uneasy thoughts and feelings. 
the disciples were going to need that kind of peace for the storm that was headed straight for them. And they weren't going to be able to experience or to know that kind of peace on their own. They had to receive it from Jesus. It was His peace. It's not their peace. It's not the world's peace. It is His peace. It's a possessive pronoun. My peace I give to you. He didn't promise them smooth sailing. He didn't promise them riches. He didn't promise comfort. Smooth sailing or sunny skies. He promised them something better. He promised them peace. His peace. J.C. Ryle notes this. He says, quote, Peace is Christ's distinctive gift. Not money, not worldly ease, not temporal prosperity. These are at best very questionable possessions. They often do more harm than good to the soul. They act as clogs and weights to our spiritual life. Inward peace of conscience arising from a sense of pardoned sin and reconciliation with God is a far greater blessing. This peace is the property of all believers, whether high or low, rich or poor. End quote. Now there are at least two ways of considering or of evaluating this peace that Jesus gives us. First, Jesus causes His people to be at peace with God. Jesus causes His people to be at peace with God. The key word there being with. Jesus' incarnation was necessary because humanity didn't have peace with God. Rather, we were at war with God. We were under God's wrath. And truthfully, we wouldn't have had it any other way if it were up to us. We were rebels. We were Rebels who loved to disobey, who, who refused to love Him, who refused to obey Him, who refused to serve Him. But Jesus purchased peace between a holy God and fallen sinners with His own blood. But this is a peace that only His people, only those who believe on Christ will have and experience and know. We are at peace with God and thus we are no longer under His wrath. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because His wrath toward us was poured out on Jesus who stood in our place as our legal substitute before God. He stood in our place so that we may stand in His place, dressed in His own righteousness, the righteousness of Christ before the Father. So one way of thinking about this peace is to think of peace with God. But it goes beyond that. It's not only peace with God, but Jesus also left us the peace of God. The peace of God. Think of what Paul said to the Philippians about this peace that's found when we pray. He said to them, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Now, if you take what Paul is saying there, if you're not feeling peace, what should you do? Pray. Pray. Turn your heart away from the world. Turn your heart to the Lord and pray. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's where you find the peace of God that passes understanding. And we have this peace because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and because of the ministry of Christ who left that peace for us. So the Romans, Paul said this. He said in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. That's an earthly kingdom. That's what you do in an earthly kingdom that's prospering. No, he says, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
That is the kingdom of God. We have this peace of God as a result of our being at peace with God. And we would know and experience this peace at an individual level because of the Helper, because of the the Advocate or Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, would dwell within us and would teach us, would help us to know all things, all things being everything we need to know about Christ, what He did, why He did what He did, all those things. The Holy Spirit must teach us, and He does. But here's what we need to remember. This peace that Jesus gives His people is a peace that is completely unlike the peace that you find in the world. It's not like the peace that the world offers. The world will offer you some type of of peace, but that peace that the world offers comes and goes. How many of you have ever lost a friend? We all have, right? Everybody's lost a friend at some point. The peace of the world just kind of comes and goes. It's, it's temporary. It's fragile. It's, it's ephemeral. It comes and goes. It's ultimately, therefore, worthless. But the peace that Jesus gives those who truly believe in Him is an everlasting peace that can never be lost, that can never be stolen, that can never be lessened or diminished in any way. Think of the way that the world gives peace. Does it ever truly last? I mean, how many peace treaties have been drawn up in world history that have just fallen apart almost immediately as soon as the ink is dry on the page? The peace treaty's broken. How many times has that happened? The answer is the number is too great to count with any degree of accuracy. Uh, one example would be after World War I had ended, uh, the war was referred to as the war to end all wars. And here we are a hundred years later and we look back and we can kind of laugh at that term because it didn't end anything. Uh, if anything, it made war more fierce. It made the development of weapons more dangerous. Did it end all wars? <laughs> Not even close. Like in what universe could we say that about World War I? Nevertheless, France and the United States, after World War I, introduced a peace treaty known as the Kellogg-Briand Act of 1928. It renounced and it condemned, quote, war as an instrument of national policy, all for the sake of avoiding war in the future. And yet, within just a few years, Japan went to war in Manchuria. Before long, World War II was well underway. The treaty that was supposed to bring an end to all wars failed in every possible sense of the term. All the peace that the world offers ends up failing miserably. Why do you think that is? And I'd say, when I know, when I, when I read the Bible and see what it says about humanity in general, uh, I would say there's an underlying selfishness, an ego that every single one of us has uh, and, and that, that causes hostility between people, between individuals, between uh, neighborhoods, between nations, between tribes. Tribes and nations, they'll make a peace treaty with the hope of giving as little as they can to get something greater in return. That's not how peace is made, by giving as little as you can to get as much as you can. That's selfish. And that's the way it's always been. That's the way it's always been. God lamented the false, selfish, worldly peace that Jerusalem's leaders were proclaiming in Jerusalem's time. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, God says, For from the least of them even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain, and from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of My people superficially, saying, Peace, peace. But there is no peace. Why not? Because they were proclaiming a peace that the world offers. It was greedy. It was selfish. From the least to the greatest, there was no peace. But this is not the kind of peace 
that Jesus left us. Jesus didn't establish a superficial, selfish, self-serving type of peace. He purchased peace instead selflessly and sacrificially, all at His own expense. So friends, are you at peace with God? It's only, it's only found by believing in Jesus. If you've done that, you have the peace of God. Do you know the peace of God? Are you able, even on your worst days, to remember the promises of God and to cling to them? To remember the promises of God that were made unto all believers laid out in Scripture. Are you able to cling to those even on your worst days? Even on your worst days, does the fact that God is with you and for you and dwelling within you, working all things for your good, does that not give you a sense of peace and assurance in the midst of your trials, in the midst of difficult seasons that you've gone through? It should. It should give you peace. When the waves are smashing over the proverbial side of the boat, and you feel fear and you feel uncertainty about it, uh, about making it out of that storm, does it not give you a sense of peace and assurance to consider that God is sovereign over that storm and has even ordained the size and the power of each wave that's lapping over the side of your boat in the midst of the storm? If the disciples had known that Jesus had the power to calm the seas. If they had known that, Mark chapter 4, in that instance, do you think that they would have woken him up fretting? If they had really known and believed that Jesus was sovereign over the storm? I doubt it. They may have gone to him and asked him to calm the storm. Sure. But if they knew and trusted who he is and what he could do in that moment, I have to believe that they would have been as calm and as much at peace as the seas were when Christ rebuked and stilled them. Unlike the peace that the world offers, the peace that Jesus gives cannot be stolen, cannot be diminished, cannot be lessened, it cannot be lost. It is ours. It's ours. His peace is not a guarantee that there won't be any storms, but the assurance that God is greater than the storm. An assurance that God is sovereign over every storm, every trial, every hardship that we face. The peace that Jesus gives His disciples is the peace that He has given to all of His people. It's a peace that allows them to rejoice even in the midst of turmoil and uncertainty. Would Jesus departing from the disciples mean losing their peace? From a worldly perspective, we would think that that's what it means, but it actually means the exact opposite. It doesn't mean that they'll lose their peace at all. It means that they will gain peace if Jesus leaves. Let's continue. Verses 28 to 31. Jesus continues and says, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Now, there's something that we should immediately make note of here. Something that we need to be clear from the outset on, and that is that Jesus is not saying that the Father is greater than He is in nature. No, they are co-equal. Jehovah's Witnesses are one cult, but there are a lot of cults that love to point to verse 28 to argue that Jesus is not equal to the Father, but that in fact He's actually 
less than the Father in His nature. Which is really ridiculous if you consider how many times throughout John's Gospel Jesus has claimed to be equal to the Father. John 10.30 The Father and I are one. How much more clear do you need to be? He's clear about this throughout John's Gospel. In this one time, this one instance, He says something that confuses a lot of people so much that they just look over here and forget all about the evidence over here. So what did Jesus mean when He said that the Father was greater than He was? He meant that the Father was in a better place than Jesus was at that moment. And so if they knew, what Jesus is saying is, if you knew where I was going, you would rejoice. I'm going to the place where the Father is. I'm going to the place where I shared glory with the Father from all eternity. Jesus at this point though was on earth. And the Father was in His heavenly glory, which Jesus at the moment was not experiencing. That's why Jesus would pray to the Father in chapter 17 saying, Now Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. John 17.5 Now if you want to confuse some Jehovah's Witnesses when they come knocking on your door, point that verse out. That Jesus shared glory with the Father before the earth was made. And yet, Isaiah says, God says in Isaiah, I don't share my glory with anybody. I won't give my glory to another. So, which is it? Jesus is equal with the Father. That's what it is. And this fits in with everything else that Jesus says here in verse 28. His return to the Father is the reason for the disciples to rejoice. It wouldn't mean the end of their peace. Rather, it would ensure the beginning of their peace. Jesus' return to the Father would only serve to bless them and to benefit them in some very, very important ways and all the ways that they needed to be blessed. And so we can rejoice with the disciples that Christ went to the Father because that would mark the time when His work on earth was completed and was accepted by the Father. We can rejoice because the new covenant was established in His blood. Jesus knew that if He gave the disciples assurance of these things now, while He was physically present with them, it would ensure that they would believe when the things He's telling them about actually came to pass. What they believe and what you and I believe is very important. What we believe is, is, is crucial. It matters greatly. After all, the peace that Jesus gives must be received by faith, by believing. But He doesn't have much more time to speak with the disciples because He says, the ruler of this world is coming for Him. Who's that? It's Satan. It's Satan. Why is Satan referred to as the ruler of this world? I'll just say this. It's not because he's got more control of the world than God does. It's not because he's got greater or even equal power to God in terms of managing the events of the world. No, he's called the ruler of this world because in John Calvin's words, Quote, by, per, by God's permission, he exercises his tyranny over the world. End quote. By God's permission. Now we should make sure that we understand that even though Satan was coming for Jesus, Jesus was still sovereign over him. Jesus didn't go to the cross against his will. He didn't go to the cross because Satan forced him to and he didn't want to. He didn't go to the cross because he was powerless against the ruler of this world. Rather, he went to the cross of his own will and choosing in an ultimate act of obedience to the Father for the sake of our redemption. Jesus finishes the discourse in the upper room by saying, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And so ultimately, that would mean that Jesus would lay down His life voluntarily. It wasn't taken from Him. He's the one who laid it down voluntarily. He surrendered it freely. I lay down my life for the sheep, He said back in chapter 10. 
Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down his life for his friends, is what he'll say in the next chapter, chapter 15. Paul says this to the Colossians. When we're talking about peace, this is an important passage. He says this to the Colossians in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And if you're wondering, how do you do this? How do you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart? It's by doing what he says next. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so, friends, if you are struggling to experience this peace in a practical sense, this this peace that Jesus promised, let me implore you to simply spend more time in His Word and in prayer. More time in His Word and more time in prayer. Listen, if you haven't ever believed savingly in Jesus, I have to tell you that you know nothing about this peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that Jesus gives His people. But He offers it to you freely and eternally. And so if you see your need for a Savior, if you see your need to be reconciled to God, if you see your need for there to be someone who can reconcile you to God through the payment that He made for sin with His own blood, and if you trust that Jesus alone can save you and gives you the forgiveness with God that you need, then this peace that He gives is yours. So repent and believe. If you've never believed, you don't know this peace. But if you will believe in Jesus, this peace is completely yours. And if you're a Christian, there are a couple different applications here. First of all, there are two things that govern the world. And I was told this when I was trained to be a stockbroker 24 years ago. Greed and fear. That's what they told me. Everything is about greed and fear. The stock market, politics, it's all about greed or fear. Those two things will manipulate people and cause them to do all kinds of crazy things. But we are not to be a people who are governed by either one of those things, by greed or by fear. Rather, we're to be governed by peace. By Christ's peace. The second application is that we can rejoice that Jesus returned to the Father where He asked the Father to send another Helper, to send the Holy Spirit who teaches us and gives us peace in troubled times. Consider the implications of this final statement that Jesus makes here in chapter 14. He says to His disciples, get up. Let us go from here. As He led them out into the world. He doesn't say, let's take cover, a storm is coming. He says, let's go out to it. In the same way, He calls us to receive His teachings and to rise up and to take them out into the world, fearless, at peace, and undeterred by the hostility of the fallen world, the dark world around us, in order that our neighbors and our friends and our family members may hear the good news and that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they too may have peace with God and know the peace of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for this chapter in which He speaks so many words of comfort and assurance that not only apply to the disciples, but apply to us even today, 2,000 years later. Thank You, Lord, that these principles and promises are timeless. Thank You that You are faithful to those promises. Thank You for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who brought to mind all the things that Jesus taught and taught them everything that they needed to know about Jesus in order that they could 
leave a record for us to learn from. And we thank You that You've given the Holy Spirit to us as well in order that we may understand Your Word. Teach us, O Lord, to live in light of these promises. In these troubling times, O Lord, we pray that You would especially teach us to know this peace, that it wouldn't just be some kind of intellectual pursuit, but that we would know it, that we would experience it in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives. In His name we pray. Amen.